Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us Michelle Seiler-Tucker. Michelle is a bit unique because she became an M&A advisor when there were few women in the mergers and acquisition industry. In fact, she shares a story when she attended her first convention and she walked into the convention center with nearly 3,000 men in attendance. A few men saw her walk in and told her that she was obviously in the wrong place and that the dermatology convention was down the hall. She unflinchingly replied that she was indeed in the right place. This gives you a little insight into Michelle's level of confidence. In our episode today, Michelle shares the details of a transaction of a company in the oil rig manufacturing business where the entrepreneur thought that he really knew best and, quite frankly, was probably a little bit full of himself. When the founder started meeting with the buyer on his own, Michelle cautioned him not to negotiate any of the terms that had already been agreed upon, which often happens when buyers and sellers get together. He was also told to follow the plan that had been developed on when to share the sale with the employees of the company. Listen carefully to what happened when the entrepreneur ignored Michelle's advice. In the next story Michelle shares, she talks about how her company had over a 65% customer concentration issue. And even though that customer was a large multinational company, how this customer concentration nearly cratered the deal and how she was able eventually to salvage it. Then Michelle tells the sad story of how a business worth roughly $30 million ended up being sold for a piddly $1.2 million. You don't want to miss out on the details of this story, for sure. Finally, Michelle shares how finding the right buyer and the right seller can be a match made in heaven, and how a catastrophe was avoided when the time was taken to make sure that there was the right match between buyer and seller. There is a huge takeaway here on how to create win-win situations and how the seller in this transaction was able to optimize their exit because the time was taken to find the right buyer. So let's get out your notepad because there are a lot of great takeaways in this episode. Enjoy. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today we have an interesting guest. She has been in the mergers and acquisition field for a number of years, and I'm really excited to have her on because she's written a book, and I think she'll provide some interesting insights here. Michelle Seiler-Tucker, would you take a few minutes and introduce yourself and talk a little bit about where you're physically located, and then we're going to jump right into some of the interesting transactional stories that you've been involved with over your career. Sure. I'm Michelle Seller-Tucker, Mergers and Acquisitions Master Intermediary, uh, Senior Business Analyst, Merger Certified Mergers and Acquisitions Professional, and a bunch of other acronyms behind my name. I've been in this industry a little over 20 years, 1,000 transactions later um, of selling businesses and franchises, pretty much in every single vertical you can imagine. 
we don't just sell businesses. We also buy businesses and flip them. We partner with business owners, investing my resources, my core competencies, our money, my money. <laughs> and we actually build them to sell uh, because Steve Forbes, what Steve Forbes says is very true. 80% of businesses on the market will never sell. And Steve Forbes endorsed my book, Exit Rich. So we specialize in buying, selling, fixing, growing companies. On average, we close about 98% of all offers we write, and we get our clients about a 20 to 40% higher selling price than what the business appraises for. And we're based in New Orleans, but we sell businesses all over the United States, and we have businesses um, that we work with in other countries as well. Oh, this is exciting. So let's jump right in. We're going to chat a couple of stories that you've been involved with, some of those transactions that you've been involved with over the years. Why don't we talk about some of those that had their challenges? And I know that you have a very high success rate in closing businesses and getting them sold for your clients. So why don't we talk about a couple or three uh, that had some unusual challenges that I think our audience would benefit from. And then we're going to talk about some of those takeaways. Sure. Yeah. So this is a, a company that specializes in the oil industry, oil manufacturing. They had about, they had 18 patents. They had an international division. They had a local division, two separate corporations though. And the the one business we appraised, you know, I forgot the appraisal price, but um, that business, you know, had about fifty to sixty employees, was doing about one point eight million dollars, right under two million dollars in, in EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Uh, just to clarify, and we had several buyers for that particular business. We had several different LOIs, letter of intent. We found a sophisticated buyer. There's five different types of buyers. I don't know if your listeners know that, but we found a sophisticated serial entrepreneurial buyer for that particular business. And um, the seller, so we can talk about some of the challenges, the, the international business was doing pretty well, but there were a lot of a lot of hands in a pot. So there were he had a brother that was a partner. He had a soon-to-be ex-wife uh, that was a partner. Uh, plus, he had the new girlfriend in the mix. <laughs> so there were a lot of emotions or a lot of um, you know, people's opinions floating around. And so we really had to work diligently with the soon-to-be ex-wife's attorney, her accounting team, her legal team. We had to work, um, obviously, with the seller, with his brother, and um, really trying to get them to understand the deal. And one of the biggest challenges with this transaction is a seller just didn't listen <laughs> to anything we had to say. When you say he didn't listen, he brought you on as an M&A advisor. And when you say he didn't listen, he didn't want to hear what you were saying or he had his own agenda and marched to his own drum? He heard what I was saying. I don't know what his agenda was other than messing up his own deal, but <laughs> he didn't listen. He didn't march to the beat of his own drum. And he pretty much did the opposite of everything I asked him to do. I remember one of the initial meetings where he was meeting the buyer. The buyer wanted to take him off separately into the closing room, into the conference room, and have a conversation with him. And I told the seller then, I said, look, don't get into the negotiations. Don't, don't you know, agree upon price and terms. Don't do any of that without us being present. He comes out of the meeting and I said, how did it go? And he said, great. I said, did you negotiate anything? He said, absolutely not. Well, we go to the airport and the buyer starts to tell me what he said he would sell the business for. 
He starts to tell me what he would sell the second business for. Now, the second business was headed into foreclosure because the seller's son was running the business and they had some, they had a lot of a lot of issues with that particular company. It was headed into bankruptcy. So the seller told the buyer what he would sell, sell the international company for, what he would sell the domestic company for, that he would retain on as a partner at what percentage. And he would even sign off on the original loan to purchase the business and to give the seller that 70% down. So he negotiated all of these terms and conditions without me being present after I told him not to. I just interject here, Michelle, that's really insightful for a business owner because one of the things that a seller should always be aware of is that someone like you that's been through dozens, if not hundreds of these types of transactions, knows how to read a buyer and how to negotiate in the best interest of the seller and their client. And it looks like what you're telling me here is that he sort of set all of that aside and tried to, for whatever reason, negotiate terms without you being present. Did that work out in his favor? Well, of course it didn't. <laughs> and, you know, again, I've sold over 500 businesses just for, so your listeners will know. So I have a tremendous amount of experience. But, you know, entrepreneurs are typically, you know, I, I call them bull in, in a, in a um, China shop because they march to the beat of their own drum. They want to make decisions. They want to do things quickly. And they don't sit back and think about things. They don't think about the rate, you know, they don't think about the consequences of such. And, it was a big issue. It turned out to be a big issue later because then he says, no, I didn't agree I was going to sell the business for that. I didn't agree I was going to set off on this debt. I didn't agree to this. Well, now it's he said, she said. And even if he didn't agree, it's the seller's, it's the buyer's perception. It's the buyer's perception that he did agree. And that's you know, now our reality because the buyer said, yes, he did agree. And I wasn't there to say, yes, he did or yes, he didn't. That's why I really have to be present at all meetings. You, you know, buyer, sellers should never negotiate with buyers without your advisor being there, without making sure because buyers misinterpret what sellers say. Sellers misinterpret what buyers say. There's sellers remorse, there's buyers remorse, there's all kinds of emotions flying around. You need an advisor there to make sure everybody is heard and understood and make sure that if you are negotiating, or negotiating as a team for the you know the biggest benefit of the seller. Well, sounds like in this situation you had kind of a free thinking founder entrepreneur here that probably didn't listen to your advice there. What about some of the other things that you told him to do as it relates to employees or financials or things like that? Did he follow your advice on that? He didn't just not follow my advice. He didn't follow the attorneys or the CPAs or anybody's advice. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't just mine. Uh, but yes, we also told him not to tell the employees that he was selling the business. And this is a big no-no. You never want to tell your employees that you are selling the company. Because if the sale doesn't go through, then you could have, you know, if the sale doesn't go through, now your, business, now your employees know that you're trying to sell your company. So you should never tell your employees. And I told him not to tell the employees. What does he do? Very following week, he sets up a meeting, tells everybody he's selling. One of his lead management, um, one of his leads on one of his management teams got up and walked out. And another lady that was a lead manager demanded a $20,000 raise to stay. That's par for the course, isn't it? Yeah. And that's one of the biggest reasons you don't want to tell your employees because employees get scared. They get nervous. They're not sure if they're, you know, if the new owner is going to come in and terminate them. They don't know, you know, if the new owner is going to be you know, easy to work for. So they get, they get nervous. They get scared. They start looking for other positions. So you never want to say you're selling the business 
until the money's in the bank. Sounds like you were able to keep this transaction together as you move toward closing. Were there any big surprises at closing and did it close smoothly after all these other issues? Let me just tell you, my, my firm has done over a thousand transactions. There is no deal that closed smoothly without issues, <laughs> without some bumps in the road. You know, uh, and mergers and acquisitions advisors job really doesn't begin until we have to put the deal back together again. And so every deal has bumps, every deal has roadblocks, every deal has issues. As far as this particular deal, there were all kinds of roadblocks. There were all kinds of issues. Um, a week before closing, the, the, the buyer's team uh, sent out a due diligence representative to start inventory. We hired a third-party company to take inventory. It was excessive inventory, over $3 million worth. And um, I went there on Monday to meet them. It was my understanding they were going to be there for one day. They ended up staying there for an entire week, not just taking inventory, but the buyer side started due diligence without the sell side knowing that they were there to do due diligence, not inventory. So I ended up staying the entire time to make sure that all of the due diligence items that the buy side was asking for went through the legal side to get reviewed first before we turn it over to the buy side, which is how due diligence should be handled. So I ended up staying there for a week and um, they were taking inventory. So this particular deal included all the inventory, included all the receivables and included all the payables to be paid off to meet the working capital target. The buyer was flying in Monday to do the closing. Sunday night, the buyer is calling me about every 45 minutes to an hour Ended up two o'clock in the morning when we realized where we were. We were a little over a million dollars short uh, as far as inventory goes, as far as receivables, and there were more payables that needed to be paid. And that's the target working capital. You were short on that. That's what you're talking about. We were short on the working capital target because they were short on inventory. They didn't have as much inventory as they anticipated. They also didn't have as much AR as they thought that they had. And the payables didn't have as many payables because one of the big issues is the seller needed to pay down payables and pay down liability. Well, when they collected a bunch of money, they went and paid a bunch of bonuses, cash bonuses, instead of paying down debt. Now, it's okay to pay employee bonuses. We should all take care of our employees, <laughs> but we also got to look at the letter of intent. What does it say? Does it say give cash bonuses or does it say pay off your debt? <laughs> This one said, pay off your debt. The seller didn't do that. Again, the seller did the opposite. So we were short. We were over a million dollars short. So the buyer could have walked away from the transaction, but the buyer said, look, I'll come up 350000 If you come up three hundred fifty, dollars if the seller will come up three hundred and fifty, dollars you know, I gave three hundred fifty dollars from the committee. Everybody had to come, uh, come up $350,000 to make the deal work. So everybody agreed. The buyer flew in. We ended up closing the transaction. We did not fund on the transaction until 30, about right at 30 days later, because the banker was in the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) And the seller really wanted to close on the transaction because it was a big deal coming down the pipeline. And the seller wanted the revenue from that deal. So he didn't want to wait. But the banker was in the hospital, so we did what's called a dry closing without being funded. Well, it sounds like this transaction you were able, as an advisor should, as you said, and I think that's a great soundbite for our audience out there, is that an M&A advisor's work really starts when they have to start putting the deal back together because, as you said, every deal has its own unique challenges and issues with it. So what is the big takeaway here? I guess if I were to say it was probably... Listen to your advisor. Is that is that what you would say? 
Yeah. I mean, when you hire an expert, if you hire an, an attorney to give you advice, are you going to listen to that attorney and follow their advice? Or are you going to, going to go out there and do your own thing? If you go out there and do your own thing and don't follow the advice of the attorney, it's probably going to get you in trouble, right? Same thing with your accountant. Same thing with your m and advisor. You're hiring them because of their expertise, because of their core competencies, because of their experience. So you really need to listen to what your advisor is telling you because they represent you. They're on your team and they're trying to get you the best deal possible. I'm going to say just from how you've described the business here, it sounds like if they would have listened to you, they would probably have walked away from the deal with a lot more money in their pocket. Is that a fair statement? Well, they wouldn't have walked away with more money because, number one, I had to give up you know, $350,000 to the closing table, but they would have walked away with more because they had to pay off all those payables. If they would have listened to me, yes, because we could have probably negotiated a higher price and, and instead of giving all the money away, they would have been able to pay down that debt, which would have been more money in their pocket. Does that make sense? Because they had to pay all of that off at closing. So I guess the takeaway here is that you hire someone for their expertise, especially an M&A advisor like yourself, you should probably listen to them. So that's uh, <laughs> that would be my takeaway from this transactional story that you shared with us. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of intrigued now uh, to talk about maybe another transaction that you've been involved in that had an equally interesting twist and turns in it with a great takeaway. So why don't you share another story with us? The company we're talking about, the first company does manufacturing platforms. So they manufacture different pieces and components and platforms and things of that nature. They had 18 patents. The other company also manufactures containers and they service the oil industry. And this particular business had two partners, um, one in their 80s, one in their 50s. And um, the biggest, the biggest, well, there's several challenges on this one as well, not as many, but one of the biggest issues is seller's remorse. You know, they would decide, hey, we want to sell the business, we want to sell the business. And, you know, and then all of a sudden they would change their mind again. So let me kind of go backwards on this one a little bit. Uh, we, and in my book, Exit Rich, we talk about building a solid infrastructure on what I call the six Ps, which is you got to have the right people. You got to have the right management team in place. So people, product, processes, proprietary, patrons, which is your client base, and then profits. This particular business ran on all six Ps except for patrons. They had customer concentration. The 65% of the revenue was tied up in the BP contract. So BP meaning British Petroleum. Okay, great. British Petroleum contract. And 65% customer concentration scares buyers because it's a huge risk. Just share a little bit of insight. Why would a buyer, I mean, you have a big international company like British Petroleum, seems that would be like a comfort that you have this big time client. Why is having so much concentration, why would that scare a buyer? Well, I remember when BP had that oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, Yeah, pretty much shut down. <laughs> Remember, yes. anything can happen to a customer. If you have 60, 60, 65, 70, 80% revenue tied up to one customer and you lose that customer for whatever reason, because of an oil spill, because they hired somebody new and they decided they want to go to, to their old buddy and do business with their buddy and they don't want to do business with this company anymore. For whatever reason, you could lose that contract. You lose that contract. You lose 65% of your revenue. You lose 65% of your EBITDA. 
you are literally out of business if you lose 65% of your revenues. So buyers are extremely concerned because they want customer diversification, not customer concentration. And 65% is a huge, huge, huge number. And if they lose that customer, they can't, the, the business cannot continue on. They would have to go out there and get another 65% customer. And that's very difficult to do. So that's why most buyers are concerned with that. We appraised this business in the $9.8 million range, which included the real estate. We had about 550 different buyers look at this business because we have over 45,000 buyers in our database. We narrowed it down to about 12 different LOIs, letter of intents, but each letter of intent had earnout language and clawbacks and all types of contingencies to mitigate the risk. So why don't you share with our uh, audience a little bit about what that term clawback means? So a clawback could be a contingency. If you lose, if I pay you, you know, this, if I pay you $10 million for your business and you lose BP, which is 65% of the revenue, then I could claw back that percentage of the purchase price and get that money back. Or... There's earnout language where it says, look, I'll pay you for this percentage of your client base, and then I'll give you an earnout for every year you keep that BP contract. So the sellers weren't interested in entertaining any of these offers because it had strong contingencies. And so we ended up finding what I call the needle in a haystack strategic buyer. Remember, there's five different types of buyers. This strategic buyer had similar products and services but can never get in to BP. They've been trying for decades and they can never get their foot in the door. So this particular client was willing to outbid everybody else. They offered $15 million for the company for 70% of the business. It's 165% more than what the business appraised for because they wanted that BP contract. And the reason they would do that, just for clarification, that strategic buyer, which you termed as the needle in the haystack buyer, they were willing to do that because they wanted a foot in the door to BP because they probably had other things that BP might be interested in. So it was definitely worth it for them. Absolutely. Because remember, they had some Similar products and services, not competitive, just similar to what the, to the business that they were buying. So if they get their products and services into BP, that catapults their business to the next level. And they've been trying to get their foot in the door for BP, like I said, for decades. So this contract gets them in the door. So they're not buying the business. They're buying the contract. Well, that's an interesting spin on the motivations <laughs> of, a, of a buyer, that it isn't always about cash flow. It isn't always about performance. In this particular case, all those things were nice to have, I guess, but that what they really valued was that contract. In most cases, and, and not every advisor can figure this out, in most cases, that's, that's, that's our core competency. We figure out what are those synergies of that business and what are the strategic competitive private equity buyers willing to pay for those synergies that will help catapult their business to the next level because buyers will pay a much higher multiple for proprietary, for patents and trademarks and contracts and databases and things that will catapult their company, like I said, to the very next level. And it's why it's so important to hire the right M&A advisor because it's not always about the cash flow. I mean, Facebook paid $19 billion for WhatsApp and WhatsApp was hemorrhaging money. They were making zero money. <laughs> they were hemorrhaging, but guess what they had? They had a billion users and Facebook knew they could ROI that. They knew they could monetize on that. So it's not always about the cash flow. Many times it's about the synergies. So you really want to have an M&A advisor that knows how to evaluate your synergies. 
Well, in this takeaway then for this transaction, setting aside the strategic buyer that actually showed up and paid a lot more for the business, but for a lot of our listeners out there, what would be the big takeaway that's kind of a no-no? Well, I, I want to give you a little bit more about this story, and then I'll give you two takeaways. Okay, great. Because the other big thing about this story that is important for your listeners to know is after the BP oil spill, this company had almost went out of business. You know, they were operating with a couple of employees and literally went out of, almost went out of business. And then the oil industry came back and they were, you know, rolling in the dough. They were making a tremendous amount of money. We had a negotiated letter of intent. The sellers decided they want to pull the real estate out of the transaction, but they don't want to give up any money. And then they want a higher price and then they want shorter terms on solar financing. And they want this and they want that. They want to renegotiate the entire deal because they were having seller's remorse because they were making so much money. So it wasn't until towards the end of the year when they saw that that oil, that it wasn't going to continue, it wasn't sustainable, that they decided, oh, you know what? We have to sell. We have to sell right away. So then they got the buyers interested. But guess what? Here's another issue. There, they did not have a transferability clause in the BP contract. And this is an asset sale. 98% of all sales are asset sales, not stock sales. So they didn't have that transferability contract. So the buyers kept going to, to this lady at BP, bringing her chocolates, bringing her wine, bringing her everything, practically proposing to her on one knee, asking her to go to the top to get a consent to transfer signed. And they couldn't get this done. And it had been like six months. Finally, the seller's like, we want to sell. And the buyer said, we want to buy. We'll come up with this agreement and we're okay with this. We'll take the risk, but we got to hurry up and get this deal done. Well, the attorneys are in the middle. The attorney is in the middle of the ocean on a cruise because we weren't expected to close till a few months later. We ended up closing anyway because I got a local attorney involved, but it took 10 hours on the phone to get this done. So the big takeaway to this is a few things. Number one, you want customer concentration, not you want customer diversification, not customer concentration, because you don't always get fortunate to find that right buyer and you know that needle in a haystack type of buyer that's going to pay you premium for your contracts. Now we're pretty good at finding those type of buyers, but you always want to mitigate your risk and have customer diversification. The other big takeaway is in your contracts, always have that transferability clause that says this contract is transferable upon a new entity because 98% sales are asset sales. And if you're if your clients won't sign a consent to transfer, or you don't want them to know you're selling your business till after the sale, then your deal can fall apart. The other big takeaway is seller's remorse. Make a decision you're going to sell the business. Be firm on the, you know, once you commit to the price and terms, you can't just go back and renegotiate the, the LOI. That's not negotiating in good faith. And it really leads a bad taste in the buyer's mouth, especially if you plan on working with this buyer and staying on as an equity owner. Those are the big takeaways. Well, those are some insightful takeaways, actually. And I really like the the big no-no really here is that customer concentration issue because you may not be able to find that buyer in a haystack situation out there. And I know in some situations I've been aware of and a part of is that bankers will not finance high customer concentration issues. They just won't get involved because they realize the risk. If that buyer goes away, they're not going to get repaid. And so that's not a bankable deal in a lot of situations. So you did a great job on that. So high five to you on that one. Thank you. 
All right, so let's talk about you doing so well on chatting a little bit about these challenging situations. Let's change up a little bit here instead of talking about a couple of good ones. Let's put one more challenging uh, transaction on the table here and chat about that. This has been really fascinating here today. So this is, um, we'll get, we'll leave the oil industry. <laughs> we'll leave the energy sector and we'll move on to staffing. So this business uh, is an industrial staffing company. They have multiple locations all over the United States. They've been in business for many years. Let me just clarify. When you say staffing, they just didn't place people. This was kind of like an employee leasing where they actually stayed as employees of the staffing company. Is that how this works? The staffing company has employees. That's how it works. They have employees and they either place interim employees or permanent employees, temporary, interim, permanent. So they could do, you know, weekly work, monthly work. If they were a good fit, then they had a program where the, the client could hire that employee on permanent. So that's how they worked. And it was industrial staffing. So an employee might be at one plant for a month and then move to another plant, you know, and stay there for two or three months. Like I said, if they were a good fit, then then the client could hire that employee on as a permanent basis. But during that temporary staffing, they were kind of employees of the staffing company. Correct. Until they become a permanent hire, they're employees of the staffing company. So they had 30 locations. They had a pretty hefty client base. And um, this is a business that we could have sold for about $30 million and above. The biggest issue with this business was the owner. <laughs> I always say fish stinks from the head. <laughs> so this owner decides... <laughs> I haven't heard that thing in a long time. That goes way back a long time that I've heard that one. <laughs> but it's true, right? Fish stinks from the head. It is true. So this owner was making decisions based on emotions, not making decisions based on logic. And that's probably the takeaway that I gave at the beginning. <laughs> but this, this owner had decided that He's going to leave his wife and marry his high school sweetheart while he's still married to his wife. <laughs> he called me up one day and said, hey, I just got married. I said, I thought you were married. <laughs> he goes, no, 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 I divorced her. But he never was legally divorced. So that happened. And then shortly after that, one of his employees had a catastrophic, catastrophic event, catastrophic injuries, and actually lost a limb. Just for clarification, this is one of his staffing employees. This is one of his employees, lost a limb. Right. So, of course, there's lawsuits, all kinds of issues, workers' comp claims, etc. He falsifies information on worker comps forms, on the worker comps forms falsifies information. Well, that's a big no-no. That's a huge no-no. So he calls me and said, Michelle, we got to sell this company. We got to sell this company. I said, well, I have buyers. We're working it, you know? And I go, why? And he goes, well, I just don't know how much longer I can hold on. I'm like, why? Come to find out, he didn't have any workers' comp insurance. He lost his workers' comp carrier. So it's a three-wind. So he had this catastrophic injury with one of his employees. And, of course, that's going to cause your workman's comp rates to skyrocket. And so he did some non-disclosures or false disclosures, which ended up in having his workman's comp canceled. That's what it sounds like, right? Correct. That is correct. Wow. So he operated for three months without workers' comp. You talk about high risk. And... He was shopping other workers' comp companies, but this is a process that doesn't happen overnight. He ended up losing clients. Offices started closing. The revenues dropped. The EBITDA dropped, obviously. And the company was no longer worth $30 million. We were working with a buyer 
that we were negotiating, you know, a million, a multi-million dollar price tag, and the company ended up in bankruptcy. So you're talking like a chapter 11, right? Chapter 11. I got approved as a stocking horse, which means an M&A advisor, merchants and acquisitions has to get approved by the judge as what they call a stocking horse to be able to sell the business in chapter 11. So I got approved as a stocking horse. My buyer who was going to pay millions for the company ended up buying the business for $1.2 million out of chapter 11. Well, we could have sold it in the $30 million range. Well, that is quite a story. It sounds like decisions that he made in his personal life, that kind of carried over to these harebrained decisions that he made in his corporate life. He thought he was untouchable because one of the comments he made to me was, everything I own is a trust, is in the trust. I'm untouchable because everything's in the trust. Well, that's not really true. <laughs> not untouchable. It sounds like they may be untouchable, but the value of what's inside the trust went from 30 million to 1.2. That was a big deal here, right? Right. So anyway, so we started ended up selling for 1.2. And yeah, the big takeaway is, you know, he made decisions based on emotions, not on logic and self-destruct. This was self-destruction. And it was sad because a lot of employees lost their jobs. A lot, tremendous amount of employees lost their jobs. You know, um, clients had to end up shopping for somebody else. And, um, but the good news is we were able to sell it and pay off some of the vendors. Well, that is quite a story when you look at taking an asset that has tremendous enterprise value. And just because of either bad decisions or emotional decisions or decisions that ego <laughs> or ego. Yeah. And entrepreneurs are endemic for that because they have success early or they get to believing they're the reason for success. And sometimes they happen to be in the right place at the right time and are able to build a great company. But when things go sideways, sometimes it isn't them. It's other things outside of their situation. And it sounds like that's kind of a situation that we had here. Well, we're going to jump over in a few minutes, Michelle, here and talk a little bit about uh, some of those transactions that you had. This is real good, feel good about and really worked out well, kind of win-win situations. But first, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be back in a minute. As I share stories from intermediaries on the podcast, I get comments from entrepreneurs all the time that have questions and concerns about how to properly position their business for an eventual exit. One of their biggest concerns is what they need to do to optimize the value of their business when a time arrives for an eventual exit. I have prepared a report that outlines how any entrepreneur can literally double the amount of money they put into their pocket when they sell their business. While it may seem like I'm hyping how easy it is to maximize business value, it really isn't that easy. But if you do the right things, it's not as hard as you think. The real key is knowing what to do, how to do it, and when to do it. To get your free report, just go to www.businessexitstories.com forward slash report. Again, that's www.businessexitstories.com forward slash report, and I'll send you your free report. All right, we're back here with Michelle. Michelle, we've just been chatting about some of those transactions that have been challenging and didn't always work out well or as well for those founder entrepreneurs that you've dealt with and helped them facilitate an exit out of their business. So why don't we chat about a transaction that you have a good feeling about that was a win for everyone that was involved and that you kind of feel 
that you were able to make the right decisions to help transaction kind of come together that benefited everybody? Sure. So this is a, a smaller company. Um, you know, we've been talking about multi-million dollar businesses. This is a, a much smaller business. We had a lady uh, call us up one day, call her office, and I overheard one of my agents talking to this lady about a restaurant. She started asking questions about different restaurants that my office had had you know taken an engagement on, and you know we asked the agent asked her, well, "What do you do now?" And she said, "Well, I've been in banking for thirty years." And I'm very close to retirement, but I really want to own my own business and I don't want to stay in banking and I'm you know, willing to give that up. And I chimed in real quick and said, wait a minute, why restaurants? Do you have experience working in restaurants? Have you ever owned a restaurant? Do you have family in restaurants? And she said, no, but it's easy. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> what book was she reading? <laughs> exactly. What was she reading? Because the restaurant industry is probably the most difficult industry you can you can be a part of, you can own. So I started asking her questions. Why the restaurant industry? She goes, well, I think it's easy. And I said, listen, it is not easy. You know, why do you want to own a business when you're so close to retirement? And she said, well, my husband contracted Agent Orange when he was in the military and he's outlived every doctor's diagnosis. And when he goes, we're going to lose his benefits. We're going to lose that income. I've been in banking for 30 years, she said, and I only make about $100,000, $110,000 a year. I have a daughter and I have no legacy. I have nothing to leave behind. I've been working for 30 years. All I'm making is $100,000 a year and I have nothing to show my daughter. She said, I really want, and when my husband dies, we're not going to be able to afford our lifestyle. And she said, so I really want a business. She said, I've, I've, I've save money. I have $350,000. I can put $300,000 down, $50,000 for working capital. I need to make about $150,000 to $175,000 a year, which is more than I make now. And I want to be able to grow the business and have my daughter work in the business and have her carry on my legacy. And I said, okay. I said, what about strength, skills, et cetera? So we took her through an analysis of what her skills are, what her strengths are, her weaknesses, et cetera. And I went back to, you know, all the businesses that we were working with. I have a flooring company that has uh, was owned by husband and wife. The wife was done. She's like, get me out of this company <laughs> because she wanted to spend time with her grandkids. The husband was actually younger than her and wanted to continue to work for, you know, several years. And most business owners want more than $300,000 down. That's all she had. So I set up meetings. They really liked her. You know, they liked her story. They liked everything about her. And they agreed to take $300,000 down. And so how much were they actually going to be carrying back then? Um, I think the whole, I think the the entire transaction, which included real estate, was $1.3 So they took $300,000 down and was carrying back a million. And so there was no outside financing involved in this transaction? There was no outside financing, which was good because they had no debt and they were in first position. If there was outside financing, they'd be in second position. So, of course, they had to lean on all the assets. They had to lean on the house, I mean, on the real estate. And then they had they were in first position, first position, and then they had a personal guarantee from the buyer. Well, sounds like this might have been a pretty good deal for the seller then because the wife was kind of done. 
and ready to move on like now. Yeah. And if you get an SBA or some other financing involved, those things can drag out for six months, nine months or whatever. And sometimes not close. <laughs> and sometimes not close because of whatever. Or you can have what we call a government shutdown. And then it gets delayed for another three months, That's right. <laughs> which yeah. has happened to some of our transactions. So it was good for the seller. Um, you know, it was a little bit less than what they wanted to take down, but they got the 300000 We also negotiated that the, the buyer would get 50% of the receivables and the seller could keep the other 50%. So the sellers would get more than the 300000 down at closing. Plus, we negotiated a little bit higher interest rate so they would get more money on, on, on their money. And um, she ended up buying this business. Uh, after one year, her cash flow was about a quarter of a million dollars, which was way over the 150, 175 that she had asked for. And this is after debt service and everything. This is after debt service, after debt service. Her daughter started working in the business. Yep. Out of curiosity, uh, the husband sounded like he just wasn't quite done. The wife was ready to move on. So how did that work out for him? Was there a transition period that he stayed on or what? Yeah. So the, the, the wife was older than the husband um, by quite a few years and she was done. She had been working her whole life. She wanted to spend time with her grandkids and he wanted to continue to work. He didn't want, he wasn't ready to retire. So he ended up staying for, I think he might still be there. Actually, this has been several years ago. I think he might still be there. So he stayed on with a negotiated salary. And they worked together to grow the business. And it sounds like they were growing the business then. Yes. And I, her income is way over half a million dollars now. Her daughter is working in the business with her. And her dreams of business ownership and leaving a legacy behind for her daughter have all come true because we were able to marry the right partners, right sellers with the right buyer and make the transaction work. Well, what I like about this story, Michelle, is that it seemed that a lot of folks that would be involved as an advisor, a business broker, or someone on a transaction like this, someone would come and say, I want to get in the restaurant business. They would say, fine, we have a couple of restaurants here. This is a nice restaurant. They get them involved in the restaurant business. As you said, restaurant businesses are notoriously difficult and finicky. You really should have experience if you're going to get involved in a restaurant, especially an independent restaurant. But you took the extra time to really figure out what was driving her decision to get into business and correcting some misconceptions she probably was unaware of, of how difficult the restaurant business is. And then it sounds like you went back to your portfolio of companies that were available for sale and you kind of look for a situation that would fit her specific circumstances. Right. That's our job. <laughs> we did our job. Now, my agent was just going to start showing her restaurants. So I had to go back and train my agent. This is the right way that we sell companies. We're, we're not order takers. We don't just put you in a restaurant because you asked for a restaurant. It's our job to do a needs analysis. Our, it's our job to do a skill sets analysis. It's our job to really find out what your why is. What are you trying to accomplish in business ownership? Because if we would have sold her a restaurant, she probably would have hated it because a restaurant, you're working more than banker's hours. <laughs> you're working around the clock. You always have to be there. So she would have hated it. She probably would have lost her investment. And then she probably would be back in banking, which she didn't want to, did not want to continue to do. So it wouldn't have met any of her needs. So it's an advisor's job to really go, go back to those buyers and figure out what are your skill sets? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What are your passions? What is your why? 
Why are you trying to own a business? And then go back to your portfolio and make the right match. And if you don't have something in your portfolio, then it's your job to find it. And most advisors don't do that. They take the lazy way and they are order takers versus experienced, you know, expertise advisors, which is what they should be doing. Another couple of things that stand out in this transaction. One is that it worked out well for the buyer. Traditionally, a seller that's taking back 70%, even though they're in first position, they assume a lot more risk. And in this situation, things that stand out for me is that you were able to mitigate some of that risk by negotiating the receivables, that they were able to keep a large chunk of those receivables, that you were able to negotiate a higher interest rate, which the business could afford, and that would benefit the seller by getting more money over a longer period of time. Plus, you found a situation where the original owner stayed on it for a period of time and may still even be working there. So that was a tremendous, I mean, that's income for them, additional income. So they didn't have to go look for another job and get involved in another business or something. So that was kind of a win-win-win situation. That's got to be a feel-good transaction for you. That is a feel-good transaction. And, you know, we're, I'm in this business to help sellers sell their legacy and really afford the lifestyle that they've always dreamed of and deserve. And I'm also in this industry to help buyers, you know, achieve financial freedom, to achieve a better quality of life, to achieve the American dream. I'm not in this to just make money and make a quick buck. If we can't make the right fit and make the right marriage, then what are we doing this for? And in my opinion, that's what this is all about. Well, this has been a delightful conversation, Michelle. You've shared some really great insights, some good takeaways for our audience out there that are looking and starting to think about positioning their company for an exit. And I think that some of the takeaways that you shared with me are good insights, not only to think about, but actually to execute when it comes time to sell your business. And I believe that that's what this podcast is all about. And I think you've provided some great takeaways here. Michelle, if someone wanted to reach out to you and get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to do that? So they can go to our main website, which is SilerTucker.com. That's SilerTucker.com. All of our contact information is there. Appreciate that information for our audience there. So this is Marvin L. Storm. We'll see you on the next episode of Business Exit Stories. Thank you, Marvin. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.